Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the London School of Economics. Um, uh, my name is Charlie Beckett. I'm director of Polis, which is the uh, media and society think tank here at the LSE. Um, I'm really pleased to uh, introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, Karn Ross is a shining example, I think, to any LSE student thinking of going into the diplomatic service. Um, he was a highly successful member of the uh, British Foreign Office, who, amongst other very important and tricky jobs, played a key role in Her Majesty's Government's policy in the build-up to the war in Iraq. Um, but his evidence, of course, to the Butler review of that policy was distinctly at odds with the official version. And not surprisingly, of course, he left the Foreign Office and he now heads the not-for-profit uh, independent diplomat consultancy. He's moved, if you like, from being a cocktail-sipping power broker to a kind of anarchic intellectual activist. Um, the latter sounds far more exciting. He'll be signing his book, by the way, his new book, um, uh, Leaderless Revolution After Tonight's Event. So if you want a copy, you go out and buy one and then come back in. Uh, it is really a terrific read and highly provocative. I'm personally very interested in this subject from a media and politics perspective. Uh, you know, very much at the forefront of my mind has been, uh, you know, what, for example, uh, do the revolutions in the Middle East represent, you know, catalyzed in part by social media? Do they suggest that a new kind of politics is emerging? Uh, will these kind of diffuse, almost anarchic movements replace old-fashioned political organizations? You know, can governments respond to the complex crises that the world faces, or will, if you like, the citizen journalist and the citizen activist actually drive change? Well, these are all obviously very, very topical and very big questions that Khan Ross is now going to answer for us. Khan Ross, please. Um, thank you, Charlie, for that introduction. Um, I'm slightly intimidated by the challenge I have to meet now, <laughs> and now I've dropped my cards. Um, I was preparing uh, the talk this afternoon uh, at my beloved cousin's where I'm staying, because I don't live in London anymore, and um, she said, how are you, Khan? How are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm a bit nervous, to be honest. She said, don't worry, Khan. I've heard lots of bad talks at the LSE. I want to draw your attention to this picture. Uh, it's by an Italian Renaissance painter called Piero della Francesca, though there's some dispute over whether or not he in fact is the, the painter today. He, uh, he was, uh, as well as a painter, he was a rationalist, a philosopher, and a mathematician. And I think you'll agree it's a nice picture. Uh, it's geometric. It is ordered. It is called the view of an ideal city. And one thing will have struck you, struck you about this picture, which is that in the ideal city, there are no people. Um, I want you to imagine what would be the components of your ideal city. Um, what would your vision of a good society look like? Um, and I suspect... Uh, my ideas about that will be similar to yours. I suspect we all share certain elements of what we think would be an ideal society. It would include things like it would be peaceful, it would be crime-free, 
Um, there would be a sense of community. There would be commitments to each other and to the place, the city where we lived. Uh, it would be, of course, ecologically sensitive. Uh, it would be uncorrupt. And perhaps it would be egalitarian. It wouldn't be like, say, Mumbai, where uh, a multi-billionaire has built a, a house of 27 stories overlooking the Dharavi slum, where a million people live in poverty. Um, it would be cosmopolitan, where all people of all backgrounds, cultures, uh, race, religion would live um, in harmony. Um, before we all break out into we are the world, or we think this is entirely ridiculous, and indeed it's, uh, I'll stop that list, indeed it's a little bit telling about our political culture that it seems a bit ridiculous to declare these aspirations for a society. Uh, compare this ideal, the perfect city, the perfect society, with the reality that we have today. It's not equal. In fact, there is rising inequality in every region, more or less everywhere. In India, uh, more than 50% of children under five are malnourished. In New York City, where I live, an astonishing one in five families relies, relies on food stamps for their survival. In this country, the poorest 10% have, over the last decade, become poorer in absolute as well as relative terms. In the environment, the concentration of carbon in our atmosphere continues to rise inexorably, despite an uh, international UN process to deal with climate change that involves hundreds of meetings, thousands of delegates. There is no concrete agreement on meaningful measures to limit carbon emissions. This tallies with the growing evidence that governments and international institutions at the national and international level are less and less capable to arbitrate problems of a globalized, borderless nature. Things like uh, climate change, economic volatility, uh, terrorism, perhaps. Um, I used to write these claims that governments know what they're doing, that they're on top of these problems. I wrote speeches about everything from the Middle East peace process to um, global trade to the future of Africa. I was, for a while, speechwriter to the Foreign Secretary. Um, as I wrote these claims, I believed them. I no longer do. And I suspect that many of us are more and more skeptical of these claims that governments make about their potency to address these problems. I suspect that amongst those skeptical are the people even writing those speeches today, today. As a result of these problems, these outputs of the current system, um, there is increasing disenchantment with politics, with our political system. Um, in America today, for instance, no politician can even start a political campaign for office without declaring their disenchantment with politicians, with the political system. It is now a political necessity to say that you hate the political system, that you hate, quote-unquote, politicians. But along with this disenchantment, sorry, um, along with this disenchantment, oh dear, uh, I'm going to have to put them somewhere else. Um, Oh, that comes off. Superb. What does it go to do now? 
Exactly, better. Nah, don't worry, I'll just hold him. Sorry, I'm just... <laughs> such a prima donna. And I'm supposed to be an anarchist. Um, uh, um, along with this disenchantment with politics um, is one senses, and one can't put one's finger on this or necessarily measure it, an increasing alienation not only from politics but perhaps from each other and perhaps even an increasing alienation from ourselves, or rather what we wish is, what we wish are our true selves, our authentic, purposeful, meaningful selves. Modernity doesn't seem to satisfy our need for that uh, sense of purpose and meaning. Um, we seem detached. We seem perhaps detached from each other, but we are certainly detached from the decisions that most concern us politically. We have lost that crucial component of an essential, and that essential component of life, which is agency. We've lost it, and we need to take it back. Around the world, problems seem to be mounting out of control. The answer is we need to take back control into our own hands. We have given away that control. We weren't asked, but we have given it away, and we need to take it back. How do we get from today's rather unsatisfactory reality to the ideal city, to the place we aspire to be in? Um, there are four key ideas in the book, The Leaderless Revolution. Um, the first is that in an increasingly interconnected system, which is today's globalized world, change can be transmitted from one part of that system, from an individual to a small group, to the whole system very quickly. Um, a classic example of this that network theorists, network theorists use a lot is the Mexican wave, which we're all familiar with from the sports stadium. An example I use in the, in the book is rather grimmer, which is the spread of suicide bombing which began in Sri Lanka, uh, used by the Tamil Tigers, was also used by Hezbollah in southern Lebanon against uh, the Israeli army, and eventually succeeded in ending the Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon, but has since spread in a very short few years to the whole of the Middle East, uh, to the subcontinent, to Asia, to North Africa. It's now even spreading into sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, it spread to Europe and the United States. Change happens quicker today than it's ever happened before. We're not living on a chessboard as conventional theories of international relations and politics would have us. We're not a series of discrete, separated players where the moves are predictable within a certain order. This is, isn't the kind of order we're familiar with. In fact, it's probably not an order at all. What we live in is something that much more resembles a Jackson Pollock painting, but even that doesn't convey its extraordinary complexity. Billions of actors interacting with each other constantly in real time. This is a new dispensation for us, and our politics are not suited to it. This new dis dispensation is not order, but neither is, is it chaos. It is something in between. This is complexity. Um, the second idea in the book, excuse me, is again 
um, not again, but is it perhaps rather banal to state, but it is because it is so incredibly obvious. Um, it is action that convinces people to change, not words. Um, the British government did a study into how to convince people to behave more in a more environmentally conscious way. And they found that people were very resistant to the um, prognostications and laws of government. They thought they didn't trust government. They thought the government was using environmental measures to extract more taxes from them. They were more um, susceptible to the influence of experts, scientists, but the people who had the most influence, the biggest capacity to change their behavior was not experts, was not governments, but their next door neighbor. Um, the actions of those people right beside you are the most influential upon you. This seems kind of really obvious. Um, uh, to any theatre director, it's a kind of classic cliché of good theatre. Show, don't tell. Somewhere along the way, however, we seem to have forgotten that causing political change is about action. In the 1930s, 30,000 international volunteers went to Spain to fight fascism and Franco's armies. 10,000 of them never came back. Today, perhaps a million people, perhaps five million, I don't really know, have signed petitions demanding an end to genocide in Darfur. That killing continues today, not only in Darfur, but also in South Kordofan and Blue Nile states, where Khartoum is busy killing people with impunity. The contrast is an obvious one. Somewhere in the late 20th century, we have slipped from a discourse, from a commitment, an understanding that it is action that changes things. We have shifted from action to inaction, or to put it bluntly, inaction, campaigning. The fourth idea is about um, responsibility. Um, and to illustrate this idea, I'll try to tell you a story about my time in Kosovo, um, where I was appointed as a grandly titled strategy coordinator to the UN mission in Kosovo. This was in 2004. In those days, Kosovo was not an independent state. Its status was undetermined because the international co community could not agree on the status of Kosovo after the NATO intervention in 99. Um, there was an international process to consider Kosovo's future. It consisted of six countries um, in a thing called the contact group, a tiny, tiny group of officials, diplomats, um, in a wholly untransparent process. When I lived in Kosovo, you could sense the political tension on the street. You could sense the frustration of people who felt they didn't have a part in their future. That frustration boiled over into violence in March 2004. Now, I'm not claiming that there was a single cause for this violence. There were many causes for this violence, including the, the, the familiar causes of ethnic um, tension and hatred. Um, but certainly one of the causes was about the political disenfranchisement of the Kosovo people from decisions about their future. We had a meeting in the UN. We invited in the Prime Minister and the Cabinet of the Government and indeed all the political leaders of the main political parties. And my boss, the Special Representative of the United Nations, 
who in fact had sovereign power over the whole country. He was the ultimate power. He was like the, uh, the viceroy of Kosovo. He wagged his finger at these political leaders and he looked over his spectacles and demanded that the violence end, demanded that they call a halt to this horrible violence which was engulfing the whole country. It was a terrifying spectacle. 18 people were killed. The peacekeepers, NATO peacekeepers and UN police completely lost control. There were rioting mobs in every city. Um, it was a very frightening thing to be part of. He looked over his spectacles and remonstrated with these political leaders. And they sat there and looked very uncomfortable and muttered excuses and muttered sort of commitments. Yes, we'll go and tell people to stop fighting and blah, blah, blah. It was a very, very awkward scene. And I thought to myself long afterwards, why was it so awkward? What was it about that scene that was so embarrassing? And I realized that it reminded me nothing more of a teacher speaking to his pupils, remonstrating with them for smoking uh, uh, behind the bike sheds or something. It was the dynamics of the scene, the, the culture of it, if you like, were exactly, were identical to that scene of a teacher remonstrating with a child. It seems extraordinary to compare a prime minister of Kosovo or the president of Kosovo with children, but that was how they seemed to behave. I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I'm trying to capture the sense of what happened there in that room because it became clear to me when I was thinking about that uh, anarchy that I experienced in Kosovo that one very clear lesson became clear to me, which was that if you don't give people responsibility for their affairs, you cannot expect them to behave responsibly. Conversely, if you give responsibility to people, you can expect them to behave more responsibly. This was a very painful lesson for Kosovo. It was an education for me, but it forms one of the crucial ideas uh, of the leaderless revolution. And it's of obvious relevance to our societies today. I'm not claiming that we're on the brink of anarchy and violence in our cities, but I am claiming that if the disenfranchisement of people from decisions about their future, the sense of disconnection that everybody seems to feel about uh, politics, about decision-making structures that seem entirely disembodied, um, certainly uh, uh, unsusceptible to our voice, to our influence. If this condition continues, then we might expect something like what happened on the streets of Kosovo. If you put these four ideas together, uh, you actually construct a completely different form of politics than the ones we have today, which is a representative democracy. Uh, what these four ideas together suggest is a method of politics. It's not a declaration of a utopia. It's not saying this is the society that will result. It is about a politics that is better than our current form of politics. And I believe intrinsic in that method of politics are outcomes which are desirable and better than the outcomes of the current system. What is that method? Well, the first one is, is very easy to declare, and I've already said it, really. Uh, it is about action. Uh, we need to take action on the political concerns that most, um, most concern us. 
we need to locate those concerns, those convictions, of course, first of all. Um, Gandhi talked about uh, a method of small steps. The change the world needs is, of course, overwhelming and intimidating, but actually there are small steps available on almost every issue which are available to us. Small steps together become something extraordinary. Um, the second uh, element of this method is collaboration. Um, identify a group of people who share your concern, uh, learn about the issue, educate yourself, um, collaborate with that group to produce the actual change that you aspire to. Not to demand others to make that change, but actually to do it yourself. Um, and of course, intrinsic in that is a necess necessity of negotiation with those most affected. Um, this was really uh, the most powerful lesson I had from my time on the UN Security Council, where I spent four and a half years on the British delegation. Um, one of the oddities about working there, you're dealing with extraordinary dramas, wars, genocide, um, extraordinary human suffering and triumph. And yet, strangely, it is quite a boring place to work. It is quite stuffy. The exchanges are quite dry um, and turgid. And I thought about why this might be. And the reason is, of course, because the people who are most affected are invariably not actually in that room. That is not a recipe for good decision making. You cannot expect your decisions to endure if you do not include the people most affected in that, in that process of decision making. And in all this, I do think it's time we probably rejected this um, hoary old cliche, uh, much beloved, um, called the golden rule, this maxim that declares we should treat others as we would be treated. This seems to me fundamentally flawed in that it refers only to ourselves. It is ultimately solipsistic. It says that we are the arbiter of what they should experience. And in its most extreme form, it leads to the uh, uh, arrogance of the neocons who declared that other people were prepared to pay the cost in lives to be delivered from dictatorship into democracy. Um, instead, the maxim that we might follow um, is simple. It's ask other people what they want. Ask them. Um, their voices are now more available than ever before, thanks to the internet, Twitter, social media. Um, outside of North Korea, you can hear what people want very, very clearly. Those opinions are very easy to access in a way that they haven't been before. So I suggest that that maxim is, is one we should always try to follow. Um, the third element of this method is um, about collective decision-making. Uh, um, excuse me one second. I just want to make sure I talk about a really good example that I think I may have forgotten. Um, oh, yeah, here it is. Yeah, I slipped a card. I missed a card. Sorry. Um, it's a really important idea, actually. I can't believe I missed it. Um, but it's about participation. It's actually the core of the whole thesis. And it's not only an idea, an observation about the world, but it's also a suggestion of a key element of the method of politics that we might follow from now. 
It is that mass participation in decision-making leads to better outcomes than the current system of elite decision-making, of representatives elected by us to make decisions on our behalf. Um, this seems extraordinary. It seems really odd to us to suggest that we should have literally thousands or hundreds of people debating uh, what should be done in their cities, in their localities, perhaps even in their countries. But the results are actually clear. There are examples of this working today, um, and there have been a lot of social studies, empirical uh, study, which suggests that it works. Because when you have people all in the room together taking decisions about things that really matter to them, and I hasten to add it is about real decision-making, not about sharing opinions. It's not about debating. It's not about being on the internet and telling people what you think. It is about making a real decision. And there's, it must mean there's nobody else who can make that decision. You in that room have the entire responsibility for the decision. If that condition applies, the outcomes from that decision-making process are extraordinary. They include more respect for each other's views. People take each other more seriously when they know the decision really matters. Um, they respect science and facts more. This seems important when there are still some who want to ignore the science of climate, climate change. There's a professor at Stanford University called James Fishkin who's done a lot of work on this so-called deliberative or participatory democracy. I recommend his works to you. They show these outcomes very clearly. But one interesting outcome which we don't seem very familiar with is that the outcome of this kind of mass participation is more equality, more egalitarian outcomes. In 1989, a city called Porto Alegre in Brazil was one of the most unequal cities in the continent. It had an extremely rich center surrounded by slums um, where government services were intermittent, sparse, if not to say non-existent. They instituted a system of mass participatory decision-making over the budget of that city. And that system is still going on today. Literally 50,000 people in the city every year take part in debates and decision-making about what the government, the local government budget, should be spent on. Um, notably, nobody's paid to do this. People volunteer um, to participate. Uh, what has happened in Porto Alegre, and this has been um, shown in a World Bank survey, is that Porto Alegre has become a more equal city. Uh, services, schools, sanitation, education are now much more equally distributed around the city. And that's because everybody took, place, took part in the decision-making, uh, whereas before, of course, a small elite was much more susceptible to the influence of the powerful. And another outcome of mass participation in decision-making is, again, very obvious. If you include people in decision-making, they're likely to show far more commitment to the outcome. After Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, there was, unsurprisingly, extraordinary disillusionment with the local government, with local politicians. People simply didn't trust these politicians who had totally failed to protect the city. Moreover, the citizens of New Orleans had spread all over the United States. They were refugees from their own city. Most of them were no longer in New Orleans itself. How on earth would you address that politically? How on earth would you get consent 
to a plan to reconstruct the city in that circumstances, in that circumstance. They tried a couple of exercises. They tried to do online consultation on a new reconstruction plan. And they found that although you know, a certain number of people participated, um, it didn't include a representative sample of the city. Of course, the poor and minority groups, um, African Americans in particular, were excluded. The so-called um, internet deficit, I think it's called, anyway. But a familiar problem with um, the internet and participation thereon. Instead, what they did was they organized mass meetings all around America to consult the citizens on the reconstruction plan. And as a result, they uh, got a plan that enjoyed 80% support amongst the population. This is not a familiar outcome for our, from our politics. It would be difficult to, to name a, a, a political decision that enjoyed that kind of support, which was egalitarian, uh, where people respected each other, where everybody felt consulted and included, facts were respected, blah, blah, blah. These are not outcomes we're used to. The ideas in the leaderless revolution also suggest a different form of organization of, it, of our economic life, of, um, above all, the workplace, the business place. It starts at the microcosmic. The current model of private ownership um, or a share-owned company um, has become in itself a problem. Uh, it has driven a short-termism. Companies that are publicly traded are required to show either short-term profits or pretty strong prospects of profits soon. Um, this obviously um, is not good for uh, building long-term sustainable companies or considering values that are perhaps equally important to profit, like the welfare of workers or um, consideration about the environment. Um, many workplaces are hierarchical. Um, we all know this from our own experience. Um, and in certainly my experience, it is as demeaning to be told what to do, um, to tell people what to do, both the teller, the boss, and the told, the worker, are somehow humiliated in that exchange. I think we sense that this is true. But nonetheless, the hierarchical model of the firm endures. Um, another aspect of, the, uh, of why hierarchy isn't an appropriate or is a less appropriate model for the 21st century takes us back to complexity. I was uh, bought the Harvard Business Review um, for my flight from New York because the cover of it said understanding complexity, how firms can succeed in an increasingly complex world. Um, the first three articles of the magazine all said the same thing. You need to empower your agents. The, the base of your company needs to be empowered to take decisions. The instinct that we have in complex systems, in what feels like chaos sometimes, is to gather in, to draw information in, to try to control information, to pull it all in one place so we can make sense of it. But in fact, that instinct is entirely wrong. A more effective way to organize a company, and indeed our politics, is to empower the agents, the atomic parts, the individual pieces of the complex system. Um, of course, these, uh, these ideas suggest something like a cooperative model of the company. We're all familiar with John Lewis, a company which was given to its workers by its owner over 100 years ago. 
and is still extraordinary, extraordinarily successful and profitable in the most ferocious of competitive markets and where its workers not only enjoy extraordinarily long holidays um, and company facilities, hotels, sailing clubs, all that kind of stuff. They're not called workers, by the way. They're called partners. They also enjoy something that most of us in the company, uh, in the private sector, and perhaps even in government too, don't enjoy, which is agency. They are consulted on the decisions of the company. Uh, John Lewis is organized through local chapters, regional chapters, which consider both the local circumstances of the store and the overall strategic direction of the company. Uh, the board, the leadership of the company, is elected. You see where all of this is coming together. Um, it's a number of fairly simple ideas which together suggest something rather radical. This kind of politics, this method of politics um, I am talking about, could fit under the generic roof of the word anarchism. Um, but I want to hasten to add in saying anarchism um, that I'm not talking about anything violent. I'm not talking about the violent overthrow of the current dispensation. I'm talking about a very gentle and gradual process of building alternative forms of political cooperation and above all political action piece by piece. Having been involved in several wars, um, I have a deep hatred of violence. I feel profoundly that we need to develop a much broader menu of non-violent tools both for states and non-state actors alike. I worry more deeply that the state's legitimization of violence, of course Max Weber talked about the defining characteristic of the state being its monopoly on violence. That is what states are. That's how you identify states. They have the monopoly on violence. But what they also have is the only legitimate, they, they are the owners of the only legitimate means of using violence. Only state or those appointed by states are allowed to use violence. But it seems absurd to believe that any legitimization of violence doesn't have a greater effect. I sometimes worry profoundly that in states being the legitimate users of violence, somehow violence has been legitimized for everybody. Um, it seems very odd that the current dispensation, the system we have today, at no point are you asked whether you want it or not. Um, you are signed on to it. When a baby is born in this country, um, it is a legal requirement, punishable by a large fine if you don't do it, that you have to register your child at the local registry office. Um, that is your contracting in. Um, obviously enough, you're not really of a free will, an agency to decide whether or not you actually want to contract in at that point. And of course, the only way to contract out of the system is to die. It's perhaps because of this extraordinary, un, uh, undecided, unchosen lifetime contract that we have with the current dispensation that we are encouraged to believe that this way, representative democracy, um, the market um, as we have it today, the current economic system, is unchangeable, immutable in its fundamentals, and certainly Although we may tinker with it, perfect it, in its basic elements, it is incapable of improvement. 
uh, it seems extraordinary to me that in our political culture today, we seem to have lost the aspiration for a better society. We have moved to a managerial and technocratic model of politics where the true political choices available to the vo voter are in fact extraordinarily narrow. This year, we saw an extraordinary and moving explosion of political change in the Middle East. The Arab Spring, um, when I was observing the Arab Spring and talking to people who were part of it and watching it, there were two very old things about it. One was a young man uh, from, who'd been in Tahrir Square uh, for most of the Egyptian revolution. He came to the US for a discussion about democracy. In the group I was in, he was asked by an American, so I assume you want our, our democracy, you want our system of democracy. He said, well, actually, I don't. I don't want your system of democracy. I want one that is actually better. I've looked at your system, and I don't like what I see very much. The other extraordinary and rather odd reaction, certainly that I had, and perhaps others had, when watching the Arab Spring, was one of envy. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a revolution here where we actually change the current dispensation and replace it with something better I'm not proposing that we all go out on the streets and demand that David Cameron leave office straight away. I'm proposing something actually that's much more straightforward and um, peaceable and smooth. Um, there is a nasty truth underneath all of this, which is whether we like it or not, governments are losing power to arbitrate and affect solutions to the things that most concern us. Governments are realizing this it was leaked from the briefing notes for Ban Ki-moon when he took office as Secretary General, senior American officials. Now openly admit it, governments are less powerful than they were. What this means is actually we have no choice but to take control, to do things more for ourselves. There's no alternative but to burden ourselves with the things we used to allow government to take on for us. Our ideal city won't, I think, look like this. It won't be geometric, um, it won't be tidy, it won't be an order that we're necessarily familiar with. Um, it will be untidy, um, it will be messy, uh, it won't be built without extraordinary difficulty, but it will at least include and be populated by us. The greatest obstacle to this kind of political change is not the extraordinary difficulty of doing it. I don't underestimate the difficulty of setting up projects to actually affect change in extraordinarily complex problems. Most problems are very complicated. Um, it is odious and um, misleading that often these problems are presented to us as essentially simple, that they can be solved with one vote or one click of a button on an online petition. Most as we all know, these problems are far more complicated than that. Building movements together, acting ourselves to solve them is not easy. Nor do I underestimate the inherent rigidities of the established institutions that today embody the current dispensation. They will not welcome this change. Um, uh, it will be difficult to change them. I'm not arguing that we destroy them or undermine them, but simply that we start to do things differently. 
But perhaps the biggest obstacle in all of this um, is ourselves. It's a fear that we have of change, of course. It's a fear of ridicule, of being seen seeming to be absurd, ridiculous, absurd to imagine that we could have a city, a society that had all of those things I mentioned at the beginning. It seems almost ridiculous. But above all, the fear that we have is of our own power to do all this, to transcend the limits of the current models, political and economic, of what human beings are capable of. It seems to me extraordinary that we have accepted that what we are is defined by um, economists or defined by our political institutions which have essentially said to us that we should not have the power to decide things or do things for ourselves, that we should only be consulted once every five years, that we do not need to be educated about these problems. We can leave it essentially to others because the fear that I think most holds us back is the fear of our own power to do something which is actually extraordinary. Uh, let me leave you with that thought. Thank you. Thanks very much, Carl. Uh, that was excellent. Um, in a second, I would like to go to the audience and... Um, get your questions, um, and when you do so, make sure you wait for one of the microphones, and then please let us know who you are. For those of you, I forgot to mention at the beginning, who may be using Twitter, just to remind you that the hashtag for tonight is LSE Ross, or one word. But before we zoom out uh, to a more participatory um, deliberation, I just want to quickly ask Khan to comment on and this is something that you always have to raise slightly delicately at the LSE. But let's talk about Libya, um, which it, <laughs> I just wanted to get your take on, on what's happened there. Because in some ways it kind of um, backs your case about the, the sort of people power, leaderless revolution apparently. And yet on the other hand it's a classic example of a state violence of an old-fashioned organisation, NATO, United Nations. Yeah. And it's all gone terribly well, hasn't it? I mean... Um, uh, yes, um, it's an interesting example. Um, I th thought about Libya long ago that we ought to be isolating and boycotting that regime uh, because it, is, it, is, it was rather an odious regime. Um, and that to me is the, the answer to the question. Um, it should not have been necessary to get to a point where military intervention was, was necessary. I supported it when it happened because the people in Benghazi, who I, whose views I think should be paramount in these things, um, said they wanted it. Very clearly, they said, we will be overrun, we will be tortured in our thousands if you don't uh, have a no-fly zone, uh, uh, have intervention to protect civilians. Um, but long before that, uh, we should have been practicing both governments and ourselves, non-government actors, 
um, non-violent techniques to undermine the Gaddafi regime. We should not have been collaborating with his family. We should have been isolating them at every opportunity. We should have been boycotting and, uh, uh, the companies that did business with the regime. And ultimately, we should also, and I think this is called for in cases of extreme repression, we should have been trying to sabotage them. Um, these are the three broad headings of nonviolent action. Obviously, there's a lot of detail beneath them, and I'm working quite hard to develop that menu of nonviolent options that should be available in these cases. I'd make a broader comment about British Middle East policy, which, of course, I was responsible for a bit um, in the UN. Um, it seems to me that the Arab Spring and Libya um, have demonstrated that our policy towards the Middle East has been precisely wrong, uh, both before 9-11 and afterwards. Um, we should not be collaborating with authoritarian regimes to create order. This doesn't create order. The best way to fight terrorism is for these countries to be democratized um, by their own people. That is not done at the barrel of a gun um, as it was in Iraq in 03. It is done by ordinary people. Those should be the people we should be supporting in all circumstances. Um, they represent our values. They are us. We, our hearts lift when we see them on the streets. I have no idea why we think, well, I do have an idea, but it seems to me extraordinary that even today, after this lesson has been demonstrated so clearly, particularly, for instance, that the, the democratic activists have so clearly rejected uh, the rhetoric of Osama bin Laden and Islamic terrorism, this lesson has been so clear, and yet today we are still uh, in such relationships with Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and others, um, which are authoritarian, repressive. Um, Al-Qaeda, let us remember, began in Saudi Arabia. The suicide note of Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, talked only about Saudi Arabia and the effects of his action on our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, so, sorry, a rather discursive answer. Great. So let's um, throw it out to the audience. Do you want to pick or shall I? Please. You're in first. Thank you. Hi, um, Deborah Mason. Um, as just an ordinary citizen without power and influence, what is the first action that you would recommend I take in order to effect the smooth revolution? Um, well, the first action is your own. You'd have to decide what it is you most cared about. Um, that's what I recommend in the book. That's what I did. I think it's sometimes rather a struggle to do that because we're so unused to it. What is actually the thing that we're passionate about changing? What is that thing? Um, and, I, you know, this is why the book is not a prescription. It's merely a guide um, to a method of politics. It doesn't say what that output should be. Um, so that would be the first step. Um, and then I would would suggest uh, talking about it. It's become unfashionable, actually, to talk about our political concerns, uh, one's natural disgust at poverty and inequality and the tedium and alienation of the contem contemporary workplace. We're just sort of taught to shrug our shoulders and accept it. Um, I say don't accept it. Talk about it. Talk to others who may share your concern. Talk about what you need to do to address that problem. Um, and then there are further steps which are elaborated in the book. Okay. Over there, please. This is perhaps a somewhat fatalistic question, but I'd like to ask how you avoid in this model a 
superficial change. So in the example of Egypt, arguably, you know, there's people in the streets, but what has truly changed there, the, the military was and arguably still is in power. Uh, yeah. And, and or, you know, more broadly, how do you kind of ensure that the type of anarchy is not what you're advocating, but rather kind of the traditional way that's coupled with violence and rather than assuming that all want democracy, it may just be warring factions and, and not that everyone actually wants this d democratic end. Um, the only time anarchism has really been tried in practice in recent times, it was peaceful. That was in the Spanish Republic, the so-called Spanish Revolution that was quelled by a combined action of Mos the communists in Moscow who didn't want that kind of revolution, people um, operating themselves, owning their own businesses without centralized authority. It was largely peaceful. Um, so talking, associating anarchy always with violence or the practice of anarchism always with violence is, I think, a false association, but it's a fair question. Um, to answer your first question first, Egypt, how do you prevent that becoming, you know, just a different iteration of an unequal power, the military taking over, which seems a real risk at the moment. A lot of activists in, 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 in Egypt are very concerned about that. I fundamentally think something uh, rather extraordinary, given that I used to work in government. I actually think that any hierarchy where power is concentrated like a pyramid to uh, the base below. Um, any power, place where power is concentrated in a few hands is fundamentally susceptible to corruption of one kind or other. Um, it is almost impossible to prevent. Um, and it doesn't need to be actual corruption or bribing officials to do what you want. It is a much more subtle corruption. In the US, it is clearer what that corruption consists of. It's paying politicians to pay paying for their campaigns in return for political favor. Every American knows that that happens. They accept it as part of their democracy, but it is a form of corruption. In this country, we all know how influence is practiced, how companies, big companies, media barons have access to our politicians, which is denied us. So I think all systems which centralize power are corruptible. And I think that the only system that is ultimately resistant to that corruption, to actually anti being not a democracy, to anti-democratic forces, is one where power is much more evenly distributed um, amongst the base. There is no centralized authority. That is the best system where ordinary people feel empowered to take decisions, are, are empowered to take decisions about their circumstances, perhaps meeting locally. There is an, a question about this, about how do we deal with globalized forces. I think that will certainly come up, so perhaps I'll address it later. Um, how do you prevent it being violent and anarchic and, you know, what people think of when they think of anarchy? You know, who did people throwing firebombs? Um, I think it's something about the norms and values and morals that the people who start it express. I have great faith in normative values, and more faith in them, frankly, than I do in laws. Um, I think that people are, are deeply persuaded by what other people do, that if certain principles are elaborated and declared and stuck to, um, then that is very powerful in creating a culture which is peaceful and collaborative. Um, it doesn't automatically follow that the type of politics I'm talking about should be violent. 
On the contrary, I think the current system is fermenting disorder. I think government's attempts to create order are actually doing the opposite. Okay. Should we swing over to the other side, please? Um, take the lady in the, the grey. Yeah. Stop. Back. That's it. Thank you. Sorry. Hello, my, I'm Eugenia. I come from Spain. I'm living in South Tottenham. Okay, first, that's it, the definition of anarchy. Like at the beginning of your talk, you talk about uh, when you mention anarchy, it's synonym of chaos. And then um, they're going to talk governance uh, and losing power and control. Yes, but I feel, I feel a little bit useless still there. I think that is the markets who are getting that power no citizens. Go on. Then you got the Spanish Revolution, or kind of revolution that is going on in there. The government cannot follow what people want, because the power, the economic power, are imposing the will on our people in this kind of government. Sure. And then, what do we do with that? Ah, yes. And public opinion. Four points. Yeah. <laughs> you see, that's it. We got but how we can educate people in the media, which depends on the markets, and that's how I see that public opinion is created through television and media, traditional media. And then probably people like me that check different sources of information before getting my own idea. One million people demonstrating okay. to uh, Gaddafi. It's like, do we believe it? We don't. It's like, we cannot say. Okay, should we just take the question? Yeah. Um, um, uh, first of all, the definition. Uh, this is a somewhat false definition, uh, distinction I'm making between anarchism and anarchy. It's partly to escape this association of violence and disorder that the word anarchy tends to bring up for people. And I prefer to talk about anarchism as a method and the method is spelled out in the book and I briefly described it today. Yes, you're quite right, governments may be losing power and they may be losing them to other agents and those agents are not us. Those other agents are markets, they are big business, they are, in some cases, mafia, criminal, criminal networks. Um, these are not easy things to compete with, uh, but I think on every front, on every issue, there are tactics available to us. We have choices as consumers. We've been taught to believe that we can only, we should only choose the lowest price, that we should you know, act according to our selfish consumer preferences, and that cultural choice is repeatedly endorsed. But in fact, you can make a political choice to put your money in a cooperative bank. There are um, forms of organization of international finance which are much more robust, which are more equitable, which are above all transparent. I've written quite a lot about banking reform because it's so central, even though it's somewhat esoteric. Um, I don't think banking reform will work by governments, even if it is imposed, it, which it's not going to be. Cameron has already said he will um, not impose the Vickers Commission report in full, and he won't do it for a long time anyway, and the report isn't even out yet. Um, 
in any case, even if new regulations are imposed, market forces will drive banks to go around the regulation to innovate new kinds of financial pro products, which will arguably create, recreate the instability we've just experienced. To me, it's the same answer. You go back to the atomic level, you create organizations which are intrinsically resistant to those problems, which are intrinsically designed to avoid those problems. I, I talk about it in some depth at the book, and it's in the book, and it's somewhat complicated, but it's basically about mutualization of loans. Um, a guy called Lawrence Kotlikoff um, has elaborated these ideas. Um, how should people educate themselves? Um, well, I don't think it's our job to decide how people should be educated. I thoroughly reject the model of, you know, people are ignorant and need to be told what to think, either by a government or by a liberal elite that decides what it should be. Um, I think that if people care about issues, they will educate themselves. And, and if you, you know, when, when that happens, you do see people educating themselves. And people are discriminating. I, I don't think it's true that we don't know what to believe. I know what to believe. I'm pretty discriminating about where I go on the web, where I get my information from. It's not some ghastly cacophony of, of um, you know, dis, dis, disagreeing sources. There are actually sources which use good journalistic methods. You can find them. They are more reliable. Um, you know, I don't go to chat rooms for, 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 for my information. I'm, I'm not saying you do, but I'm just saying I think your depiction of the problem is, is more dramatically, is dramatically worse than it actually is. And I think, you know, it's very funny, when I come out with this thesis, uh, a lot of people, particularly, you know, people like me who are used to being in government, um, you know, telling people what to do, they say, well, people are so ignorant. They're so ignorant. How can they possibly give them decision-making power over things? You know, they don't know anything. And I actually just don't believe that anymore. I really, really strongly believe that when you're given a problem that you've really got to solve, how should we run our school? How are we going to solve global poverty? Um, that people educate themselves about it. Okay. I'd like to zoom to the height up there. I don't know if there is a mic. If there's not, just shout. Please, yeah. Brazil. That might um, be a few steps along from the first and second steps you mentioned, yeah. deciding what you want and then talking about it. Yeah. Um, how would you implement that type of model if you went into a city of 8 million people or into a some kind of coordination of ideas and execution needs some centralization. Why does it need centralization? That would be my first question. Why does it need that? I mean, there are some things that need to be collectively decided, you know, roads, um, you know, how we organize things that are common to us, but actually those things can be collectively, collectively decided as well. It is not implausible, Porto Alegre has shown how you can actually have mass participation, 50,000 people participating in budgetary decisions. How you do it, how it starts, 
There is no government on earth that's going to institute this. There will be no politician that will actually decree this. So maybe, maybe some politician will actually get this because they will see what's happening and they will be, try to be the one to capture the populist wave and say, actually, I'm going to be the one to devolve power. I'm going to get rid of centralised government. But I don't think we should hold our breath for that to happen. The way it should happen is that we need to set up these systems ourselves. It can be very local. Our street, we gather on our street to talk about what concerns us. Our school, our hospital, we gather and we talk. By participating, we give these forms of organisation legitimacy. A legitimacy, frankly, that many of our democratic systems currently do not have because we do not participate in them and many of us are very sceptical of them. Once they gain that legitimacy, people, politicians, governments will have to pay heed to them. No politician will be able to ignore a group of local organisation in, in his or her constituency because if they ignored them, they would not be elected. These things are potentially enormously powerful. I think the germs of the, the embryos of them are all around us. There is a new tide of volunteerism, of activism. I think it is occurring to a lot of people that the act of voting once every five years is entirely inadequate to deal with the problems that we have. Okay. Um, so I'm going to... Whoever's got the microphones, don't rush up there again, but I'm going to take another one at the top there. Just shout out, please. Sorry. In reference to Kent. Yeah. Bloody hell. This is the LS. <laughs> yeah. With a K. Don't tell me you study philosophy. No, I'm in real trouble. Um, <laughs> I just um, wanted to comment that your book is quite worried, but I didn't think it was fine. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Good questions. Um, I mean, I think people are able to engage when they have different moral systems. We do all the time. I mean, nobody, very few people are in complete moral agreement with one another. But I think the thing that is substantially lacking today is that engagement. Um, it is all very well to believe, to say we believe in multicultural societies, heterogeneity, cosmopolitanism. Um, but it won't happen on its own. Stability and engagement doesn't happen on its own. You've actually got to do it. You've actually got to engage and talk to people. Um, perhaps that might produce some universal moral norms, particularly about talking, about the necessity of talking. That might be one of them. I can't predict what they would be, but I can predict that they would be better through the discussion with others. As for your second point, um, I actually have come to believe that the condition of leaderlessness is actually an essential condition of stability. This actual heroic model of leadership that we've got is part of the problem. We attribute to these people qualities that they simply do not have and no human can have, the ability to interpret this extraordinary complicated world and make rational 
good decisions about it. Government claims over and over again that it is capable of that. I have been in government. It is not capable of that. No, no centralising authority, no individual is capable of that understanding. The best people to understand our circumstances are those who are living them. That means us. Um, so I don't really believe in the model of leadership. And I think actually it's a way of kidding ourselves and anaesthetizing ourselves. Um, and we give these people, I don't dislike them, I have some who are friends. Uh, I have some who are friends, but um, uh, we give them the authority to do extraordinary and sometimes awful things. I think nobody should be given the authority to commit violence on our behalf. There's something horrible about that. Um, there is something horrible about the detachment of those who make those decisions from the reality of violence. Uh, that is a, a terrible thing, and we have decided to give them that right. Well, I never decided to give them that right, but somehow they've got it. But very quickly, how absolute is that, though, when you compare, for example, Zimbabwe, where the policy of boycotts and sanctions and so on has completely failed, and there's the policy in Libya where, yippee, the policy of violence has actually worked splendidly, hasn't it? Well, I, I talked about what would work better in Libya, and I think the same thing applies in... But I just um, meant to say, is it, is it an absolute prescription on your part, or are you saying... Well, I think in the current dispensation, we're, we're confronted with choices that are not ideal. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, we've moved towards a system which those choices were, were less dark. Um, but I still believe in most political circumstances that nonviolent revolt is a far more powerful technique than the use of violence. And in many circumstances, it's actually not been tried. Um, in Palestine, for instance, nonviolent resistance is only just beginning as a technique, and the PLO, the leadership, seems somewhat uncomfortable with it, um, partly because it undermines their own authority as the leaders, as the ultimate uh, 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 spokesman for the Palestinian people. Uh, nonviolent protest and mass action gives political institutions and leaders a lot of problems, and it won't start with them telling us giving us permission to do it. I think in, in Zimbabwe that kind of option is available. It's also available for us to do things to help uh, benighted people of Zimbabwe, uh, including boycott. I don't think we should leave sanctions to governments. I think we should consider it ourselves. It's now possible to find out information about the provenance of almost everything we buy. I was reading today about um, in the Financial Times, which is the most subversive of newspapers, um, truly, Truly, if you want to understand how it works, read the FT. Um, uh, that you know, Apple is now facing problems because of the conditions in some of the factories where iPads are made. You know, people have committed suicide. Uh, but iP uh, Apple is actually not telling people where some of its components are produced, are being produced. And there is a, now a great pressure on Apple to to uh, uh, expose what it's doing transparently. There's a clear model of this in all circumstances. Of, is trace the chain back. Um, to where it's from and use that chain to exert pressure. Great, okay. This gentleman there in the blue jacket, please. Gordon Taylor. Um, can I give an example of how people power actually did work? Um, I set up an organization called the West London Residents Association in 2003 to fight the western extension of London con congestion charges because studies showed that we didn't have a level of congestion in West London warranted it and it was going to cause about a quarter of a million, 250 million pounds worth of damage to our local economy and a loss of 6,000 jobs. 
which it did over the eight years it was in operation. And we set up just about five of us, and we grew into an organization over the whole of West London of about 14,000. And we worked at it for eight years until Boris Johnson actually got rid of it, and uh, West London breathed a sigh of relief. So it does show that people power uh, can work. It leads me on to the second thing. You indicated that leadership perhaps wasn't required to do this, but leadership is required to get any action completed. Uh, there is a difference between the hierarchical leadership that you mentioned and what Field Marshal Slims would say, leadership from within the group. And I think that that's possibly the way forward uh, to achieve the things that you're after. In other words, you, you must have leadership, but it will be within the group and uh, supported by the group members. Sure, if consented to and shared and originating in a truly egalitarian discussion, yes, individuals can emerge who have ideas that inspire the others. Um, but what I would suggest is there's very rarely one person who always knows what the right thing to do is. Often the knowledge is, is evenly distri distributed and actually it will be different individuals who know about how to deal with different circumstances. It's the individualizing and the institutionalization of leadership that I'm opposed to. Um, as to your first point, it, it is a good example, but I would suggest that actually we're moving from a politics of collective protest to one of collective action. Um, your movement to stop the congestion charge was one of protest that is a familiar, if effective, and sometimes effective form of, of political action addressed basically to a centralised authority. If you actually had control over your part of central, of West London, you wouldn't have had the problem in the first place. You would have actually talked about the problem of congestion. Do you need to apply measures to stop it, you know, you wouldn't have been forced to what I'm sure was a very tiring and time-consuming exercise of trying to get a distant bureaucracy to listen to your concerns. Okay. It's another thing to thank Boris for. One at the back there. Um, Angus Mackay, uh, the now largely forgotten um, American anarchist uh, Paul Goodman, when that question used to be put to him, he reply, psychologists tell us that on average one in every six people is a leader, that's enough. Um, but my question to you is, Con, um, Nick Shackson's recent book uh, on the use of what euphemistically referred to as tax havens, um, and the extent to which um, the most, um, the, the richest states in the world are engaging systematically and increasingly uh, along with multinational corporations in what amounts to sovereign criminality, um, uh, motorizing wars, um, death on a staggering increasing scale, means it seemed to me that, that, that in the worst sense of the word, the anarchistic consequences uh, way out way anything to a stratospheric degree that any so-called black any multiplicity of so-called black blocks could ever achieve way way that they're, they're, they're exceeded and say increasingly by what Sorry, I term the, the gray block question, yeah, my, my question is you as somebody who was a state bureaucrat operating at a high level when exactly 
uh, and why were you prompted to go to the other end of the spectrum and start examining uh, the, uh, the tradition of, of anti-authoritarian, uh, anti-hierarchical, anti-status theory, um, and why? Um, in a word, Iraq, um, uh, uh, the whole Iraq war thing was a very, very difficult and painful experience for me. I saw my colleagues do something that I knew to be dishonest, uh, participate in something that they knew to be dishonest. Um, but I, above all, I, I went on sabbatical from the, the FCO for a bit. I sat in a library in New York for a year. I read a lot there. Uh, I was very depressed. Um, uh, David Kelly died the following summer. That event had an extraordinary effect on me. David was my colleague. It profoundly shocked me to the core that a man who was essentially loyal to, deeply loyal to the state could be treated that way um, by a government to which he had shown nothing but loyalty, um, except when it had diverged from honesty. Um, I was appalled by it, and the people who... Um, better be careful what I say, um, who were Sorry, responsible for it. I don't, think he, you know, I don't think he was murdered, but I think he was humiliated to death, which is almost yeah. worse. The people responsible for that humiliation have not been held accountable at all. I suspect some of them have spoken on this stage since then. So there was a deep emotional uh, rupture for me, which um, my very tolerant wife will testify was a very hard thing. Uh, it was ugly. Um, I floundered around. I was very angry. I didn't know what to do. I didn't actually resign from the Foreign Office until 2004, so it was hardly a heroic protest um, like Elizabeth Wilmshurst did. Um, she resigned when she saw that her legal advice had been ignored. Um, so I can't put myself in that category. Um, it was a much more drawn-out thing. But when, I, when it, I, that process started for me was an examination of what I had done as a diplomat, I sat there and I thought, well, what is it you've actually done? Um, what have you become? Um, it was a very introverted process, of course, but it was also um, analytical in that I wanted to look at the results of the policies that I had been part of. And the picture I saw was not a pretty one, uh, particularly sanctions on Iraq caused immense civilian suffering, uh, damage to the Iraqi economy. I was directly responsible for that. For that. I was directly the British diplomat who negotiated with one or two colleagues. We negotiated those resolutions which modified and engineered sanctions on Iraq. We knew there was suffering. We were told there was, um, yet we still did it. Um, and we did it because we were detached from that reality. Um, we were given permission to do it by our state. We were effectively demoralized, demoralized by our state. Um, we were given permission to be amoral. The, our security, our right to demand that Iraq disarm of its WMD was greater than the Iraqi people's right to economic development. Um, it's a really complicated story, and I won't go into it. But anyway, that, that was the moment. And that examination, self-examination, led me to think about a broader analysis of what is wrong with our political system. Why are people so disenchanted? Um, what are the outputs of this system? I personally feel very concerned about the way things are going. Um, you know, climate change scares the hell out of me. The, the way economic volatility is working is extremely concerning. I'm disgusted by the inequality of our society. The fact that we can tolerate such suffering among so many people um, is appalling to me. Um, 
and what do we do about it? I had been lobbied as a diplomat by NGOs. Um, I had seen demonstrations of people far below on First Avenue, 34 stories below me, waving placards demanding an end to sanctions. I knew that the conventional methods of political pressure did not work. I was never confronted with those protests. I was never held accountable by my parliament. Not one MP ever questioned me for, about what I did until after I resigned. No press could keep up with us. We were far better informed. We could easily outmaneuver them. They were, in any case, um, you know, driven by an agenda which was not finding out the truth about what was going, going on in Iraq. It was some other sensationalist agenda about, you know, this government minister has been tripped up in parliament or whatever. It was never a deep analysis. In other words, the three pillars of our democracy, the courts, parliament, the press, were not working. Um, Popper's theory of the civil society was not working. They were not holding the government to account normal forms of political protest. My friends who protested against the Iraq war, I kind of put my head in my hands. Don't you know what a waste of time that is? Do you know how little attention people inside the system pay to that? It is zero, zero. Um, Barney Frank put it very well when he was condemning at a demonstration in front of the White House. He said, those people are putting more pressure on the, the grass outside the White House than they are on anything inside it. Um, so what would be a better system? And that was the intellectual journey that I took um, and that led me, to my great surprise, to anarchism. I had always believed in governments that they, when populated by decent, clever people like me, um, they would do good, that they would order the world, they would create good outcomes. Um, I realized in my own work that I had not done good, that the outcomes I had helped create were bad, um, that were actually shameful. Um, uh, but what would be a better system? And that led me to this place, you know, took 10 years really uh, to get there. Um, and it's pretty extraordinary that it's got me there. But actually, the more I thought about it, I suppose this is a natural uh, consequence of human psychology, the more convinced I became. <laughs> Can I just do a very... Just a quick straw poll. How many people in this room tonight would use the word you know, anarchy or anarchist to describe, if only in large measure, their political beliefs? How many people would use the word anarchist or anarchy? All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, gosh, converse as well, that's good. Okay, thanks very much. Just, just interesting. That's right. Uh, can we take? Can we just get these? We've, got, we've only got ten minutes left, so if you can keep your questions very, very brief. Yeah, sure. Hi, my name is Vitora, and I'm from Kosovo. I study here in LSE. Ah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I have the chance to ask you a question. Uh, well, you've seen, you talked about the situation in Kosovo and the problems there, and that we have a government, but that does not take our um, does not talk on behalf of the people. Yeah. So, and we have the um, American embassy, the ambassador who decides about people's fate, who even elects our president. But what I would like to ask you about is about the self-determination movement. They are uh, using different actions, different ways to bring, to give power to people, to say that we are the people and we have to decide for ourselves. If, they, if you ask the self-determination movement of how they describe the people in Kosovo, they say that we are being treated as patients in hospital, 
because uh, the doctor is the one who decides for our condition. When yeah. we ask them how we, fe we feel, they say you are stable but uh, still tense. So our situation is like that in Kosovo. So yeah. what do you think about self-determination movement? Are they going in the right direction? Is there a way of um, the actions that they are taking? Is it a good way of giving power to people, of requiring this is, these this rights? This is Albin Kurti's thing. Yeah, Albin Kurti's thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, well, I think it's a very narrow answer to a much broader problem. And I think Albin Kurti's methods are not ones I admire. Um, um, uh, you know, just saying Kosovo needs to throw off the shackles of the international community, uh, tell Serbia to go to hell, um, and basically declare a kind of real sovereignty over its own affairs, that's not the answer. Um, it's perhaps part of the answer, but it's certainly not the whole answer. And I'm very hostile to single-issue campaigns that elevate one thing over other things when we all know that comp problems are complicated. Um, Pro Kosovo's problem is a corrupt government that is endorsed by and supported by the international community, as you've said. Um, Kosovo people need to start organizing themselves locally. Um, there are powerful systems of organization. It is a culture, as you know better than me, um, that already has a strong sense of common values. That book of values is written um, in the code, um, the um, canon. Um, I'm not saying that should be your guy, but I'm just saying the habit of local cooperation is actually very strong. Civil society is very strong in Kosovo because of what you suffered under communism. Civil society was where the, all, all the intellectuals went. Unfortunately, governments look to governments to create order. They don't look to non-governments. They don't look to other things that are actually better at creating order. So when the Americans or the Brits look at Kosovo, they think, ah, oh, we've got to perfect the government. We've got to use the tools. We've got the EU to make the leadership of Kosovo less, less corrupt. You know, we'll tell them they should be less corrupt, and Hashim Thaci will nod. He's the prime minister of Kosovo. He will nod lugubriously, as he always does, and will do precisely nothing to change the corruption of Kosovo, because the behavior of governments to keep talking to him is actually legitimizing him. And this man, these men, love nothing more than going to London or Washington and being, having their hands shaken. It's the same thing I was talking about Libya. Actually, we outside should be helping you um, not necessarily in the self-determination movement, but the extraordinary and educated and brilliant young people of Kosovo to create a different kind of political structure there. I'd gladly help in that effort. Okay. Should we dive in to the centre? There's one just there. Hi, I'm Jamie. I'm just a citizen. And I live in London, not Libya. Um, and my question is about violence. And maybe there's, um, I wonder if there's maybe a bit of a disconnect between the more positive romantic idea you might have of violence going on over there and the kind of violence that maybe can happen over here. Um, and at the heart of that is perhaps a focus on obvious, subjective, direct acts of violence, you know, throwing Molotov cocktails or whatever it is. Um, and the fact that actually behind that is a system of um, objective systemic violence, which is our economic order, which commits all kinds of violences upon subject citizens. And on yeah. the one hand, you've got the kind of alienation that you were talking about that we suffer, and on the other, a much more kind of direct kinds of suffering. Um, and I suppose that in a system where we, we you're saying that um, governments are losing a bit of ground, but they're not so much losing it to citizens as to corporations, to lobbies. And in that circumstance, and where all those elites um, show themselves to want to keep supporting that economic order, I wonder how much empowerment we can have without directly tackling 
the deep, the deep structures of our economic, social, well, cultural order. I'm saying order. tackle them. I'm not saying don't tackle them. I'm saying tackle them, but do it in an atomic way. Find organizations, banks, organization, uh, companies, found them, join them, run them, support them, buy from them, to do it differently. That's what I'm saying. Take it on at its fundamentals. I'm not saying leave the fundamentals unaddressed. And I don't have a romantic view of violence. I think um, you know, all violence is horrible and should be prohibited morally and not necessarily by law, that doesn't seem to work, does it? Um, uh, I think economic violence is a form of violence, yes. I committed it on the Iraqi people. I know all about that. Okay. Listen, we're going to have to stop it there. Um, you can continue the conversation. Khan Ross is on Twitter, uh, or you can uh, dive into my blog and comment there as well. But um, it's been a very, very rich uh, evening with lots of big ideas, and I think some kind of answers as well in there as well for us to work out. Uh, but I want to thank Khan very, very much for what's been a really interesting evening. Thanks so much.